Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are on this pale blue dot that we all live on. My name is Adamantium, and welcome to this edition of AAU TZM Podcasts. I hope everyone out there is feeling well and can uh, sit and enjoy this uh, this edition, because it's certainly shaping up to be a very interesting one. Just for the usual announcement, for those of you listening to this on YouTube right now, my podcasts also exist on TalkShoe.com. So if you wanted to download and listen to the full 60-minute podcast for free in MP3 format, you can do that there when you go down into the video description and click on the link. Other announcements, the Z-Day London event uh, this year um, is being held at the Keyworth Centre Events Theatre at Southbank University in London on the 16th of March. That unfortunately has sold out now, but an email has been sent out if you aren't able to attend, then by, then please by all means uh, contact the uh, the event um, the event organisers so your so your tickets can be uh, made available for people on the waiting list. Um, other than that, there's my own Z Day event that's going to be held at at the Old House at Home Pub in Maidstone. Uh, that's going to be on March 9th. The presentation uh, for that is shaping up to be. A very interesting one. I'm very pleased with what I've done so far with that. But one more event I will mention is that uh, this Sunday, the 10th of March, Federico Pistono, the author of Robots Will Steal Your Job But That's Okay, will be having a debate with the Socialist Party. Uh, that's going to be held at 52 Clapham High Street in London. The postcode for that is uh, SW47UN. Uh, it's going to be a free event uh, kicking off at uh, 6pm and uh, I mean I myself I want to go uh, but you know because it's the next day after my uh, Z-Day event I don't know if I can but I will make every effort to try and go because I mean Federico is a wonderfully inspirational individual anyway so I'm going to try my best to see if I can get there but I just thought I'd uh, throw that out there but like I said it's a free event this Sunday, get the chance to meet a uh, a true Italian stallion. <laughs> so I will waste no more time and get into the meat of this particular show. Today, I am very pleased to welcome Neil Kiernan, a.k.a. VTV, from V Radio. If you want to find out more about his show, uh, if you go to v-radio.org, and uh, you can find his show there. But Neil, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. I think ever since I started uh, this podcast, I've always uh, been trying to mean to get you on because uh, your show has, has been one of the first that I uh, that I listened to. So, it, you know, it's actually inspired a lot of the format of my particular show. So it's really good to have you on. Okay, thanks. Well, uh, basically, the uh, as per the title of this show, being a TZM activist. One of the first things uh, I would like to ask is what initially got you started with not just the Zeitgeist movement or the or the Venus Project, but thinking outside the box, as it were, as a free thinking individual. Well, honestly, I think it has to start with my mother. Uh, she was the most influential person on me and my childhood, and uh, more or less, uh, she had from a very young age always taught me that. You know, you should not only be aware of what's going on around you, uh, but you should be willing to question authority. And it's important, though, that she also pointed out that questioning authority doesn't just mean giving you 
uh, like a blank check to just do the opposite of whatever an authority figure says just because. It meant that you intelligently analyzed authority and then determined to act. You know, it's not an excuse to just stay two years old for your entire life. And, it, like, the example that she gave me, and I remember this, I think it was, in, like, in the sixth grade, she said, you know, there was a platoon of soldiers that were ordered to go to ground zero during the Manhattan Project after the detonation of the first nuclear weapon. And they didn't question authority. They just walked in there and did it, and every single one of those men died of radiation poisoning. That's an example of just a time that people did not think to act, you know, that did not think to consider what it was they were being told, you know, by their leaders. And that was the reason she said you need to be somewhat responsible, obviously, you know, in your evaluation of these people. So that was kind of the the foundation. And ironically, it's actually one of the reasons that led to my mother's divorce with my father, because he was a very 50s, father knows best, uh, children are to be seen and not heard kind of guy. And uh, my mom was, was not like that. She was a 60s, free-thinking kind of person. So she actually did, uh, for that reason, have a, a very different way of raising children than he was you know, going to agree to. And because of that disagreement, they got divorced. One of the key differences, and she would tell me this, you know, that she would, in fact, allow me to question the reasons that she was telling me things. And the funny thing is, is that I, because of that, became somebody who did not really need that much authority in my life from my mother. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, she still was, you know, the, the final word on things going on. You know, she was the adult. But uh, when I was 16 years old, I didn't really have a solid curfew. Um, it didn't mean that I, you know, I didn't need to report to her where I was or whatever, just for the sake of, you know, making sure in case anything happened, she'd be able to figure out you know, what had happened to me. But most of the things that you would not want a teenager to do at 16 years old, I wouldn't do anyway. And it wasn't because of the fear of my mother punishing me. It was because I had at that point, because of my mother's guidance in my early childhood, developed enough critical thinking skills that the things that 16-year-olds might do that were not wise were things I would just wouldn't do because I understood that they were not wise. You know, I understood that premarital sex, like, you know, when you're not ready for you know, children is probably not a good idea. I, I understood that <laughs> doing hard drugs was not a good idea. I understood that, you know, drinking and all that, you know, was, was not a good idea. You know, so it wasn't necessary for me to be, you know, constantly, you know, told what to do. And I think one of the most classic examples of this, will be the last story I tell on this particular part of it, yeah. um, is that one day uh, some other family members who had been people who had been vocal about my mother supposedly not being a very good parent, had their children over. And they, we had this porch, this wooden porch, and uh, these two children that were from that family literally charged up to the edge of the porch and kicked out two of the planks of the wooden like fence-like area around the top of the porch. Yeah. And, you know, so one of those parents that's supposedly better than my mother went outside to deal with, you know, the two kids. And she looked over at me and she said, you know, they... they Obviously, I've always kind of talked down to me about my parenting style, but when you guys were that age, you would never have dreamed of doing that to that porch. And, <laughs> you know, not because you were scared I was going to come spank you, but because you would realize that that would, you know, there was a dumb. Why would you do that to the porch? You know, um, yeah. so that also, of course, developed into me having an independent thought process as I was growing up politically. So I had always been an independent. I refused 
to be uh, a Republican or a Democrat, I was an independent for many years because I watched the debates and I just kind of figured out that, you know, these political parties all both seem to have their own agendas and they didn't necessarily jive. I investigated politicians directly. I mean, you know, and that's how I had approached politics. But even then, it was really casual. It wasn't until a friend of mine linked a video, which you can still see on YouTube, that says, Ron Paul courageously speaks the truth. Yeah. Uh, that I really started to go because then he went openly, you know, confronted Giuliani, Rudy Giuliani, when Giuliani said that they're attacking us because they don't, you know, they find us, you know, the Middle East finds our freedoms, you know, offensive or whatever. He's like, they don't attack us because we're free. They attack us because we've been bombing their countries and intervening <laughs> in their politics. And, you know, I was just like, wow, you know, and that opened the floodgates to me checking out more and more Ron Paul. Then eventually I, I joined that movement for a while. I became a libertarian. I even became a free market capitalist for a long time. Um, and I became a delegate to their political convention for their you know libertarian party. I ran for Congress as a libertarian in 2008 in the Michigan's 10th district. Mm. And I studied all of those things very closely, but Essentially, eventually, I started to realize that the libertarian movement could be very dogmatic and, and very vicious with anybody who deviated even a little bit from their point of view. And during that time, though, because the Federal Reserve portion of the original Zeitgeist film was very popular with the Ron Paul movement, I watched the Zeitgeist film. And when Zeitgeist Addendum came out, that seriously transformed, obviously, the way I looked at everything. And there were people within the libertarian movement who were upset that they felt like I had betrayed them or whatever, but I was never their slave. I was never part of their, exactly. you know, yeah. cult. And I don't do that. If something makes more sense to me, then I move on to something else. And that's, I guess, the short form. I mean, I could talk a little bit more about my experience with Senator Mike Gravel. He was a big mentor for me, but... yeah. Senator Gravel was a Democrat who I had convinced to go libertarian, and he switched parties, and I helped him do that. And he was a big influence on my life also because he was trying to, you know, bring it up to me. He's like, you know, there are a lot of hero worshipers in that Ron Paul movement, and it's not really Ron Paul's fault, but they don't question him. They don't ever think about, you know, uh, you know, could he ever be wrong about anything? They don't, you know, he's like, and I, I don't like people like that. He in fact, refused yeah. to associate with anything, anybody psychophantic. And after doing some research, I discovered that Ron Paul had some friends who were very theocratic in their ideas, that they believed that Christian religion should have a huge impact on our government. And when I broke that story to the libertarians and the Ron Paul movement, rather than being told, hey, good job for catching that, you know, and said they, they turned on me. They were very upset with mm. me. I and and I was like, look, I'm not a theocrat at all. In fact, one of the major reasons I got involved in all this was because Ron Paul believed in separation of church and state, or so I thought. But, you know, this guy and you know the Constitution Party that this, you know, this other presidential candidate belonged to that Ron Paul had semi-endorsed, you know, had a platform full of theocratic, anti-gay, you know, pro-religion in school and all that stuff in it that just was not libertarian. And for breaking that story, rather than being appreciated for that, I was by a few. But for the most part, people were like, "Well, you're you know you're going against Ron Paul, you know." And which I'd like to say to <laughs> be dare honest, you. <laughs> right? Well, I got to tell you, I don't believe for a moment that Ron Paul is the source of that. It doesn't change the fact, however, that that goes on in that group. 
So overall, uh, that eventually led to me just kind of full-on going into the Zeitgeist movement, and uh, I met with Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows when they came to Michigan to give a lecture here, mm-hmm. and um, kind of became a spokesman for them for a while, and pretty much everything else after that you guys know already. Uh, uh, yeah. V Radio had originally actually been my libertarian radio show, and I converted it to a TZM format, and um, it's been that way ever since. Fantastic. I mean, it's really fascinating hearing all the different kinds of stories about how people sort of like came to the move and your particular journey. I mean, you I mean, you had the foundations for critical and analytical thinking right off the bat anyway. So, you know, you were you hit the ground running, as it were. You know, that's probably why you've been such a you know a fervent and um and well well versed speaker for this anyway because you didn't have to fight through all these like um cognitive barriers as it were that so many of us have to uh, have to fight through and and some of us are still fighting through you know i mean um how how would you say you've experienced uh, talking to to other zeitgeist movement or or venus project um advocates where they're still sort of you know, experiencing that lag, as it were. I think that, well, one of the things about the Zeitgeist Movement is that it's made up of a lot of different demographics, and there are also a lot of different groups that uh, seek to kind of hopefully uh, harness the Zeitgeist Movement. You know, we dealt with that a lot on the forums. Like, the psychedelic drug movement was hoping that the Venus Project would embrace their idea. And then the feminist movement wanted us to be another feminist group and um, racial sensitivity. Like, I remember that lady who just went crazy about that at one time, Odysseus Sky, you know, went on saying, well, there's feminist, you know, there's all kinds of sexism and racism in the zeitgeist movement. And we're like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, you're not (laughs) sensitive enough about the issue, so therefore you're sexist. And Douglas Millett and I are like, we don't. It's it's not that we're not sensitive about it. It's that there isn't any, and we don't we don't have that going on here. You know, it's basically these groups that those groups in particular that if you're not militant enough about being you know pro woman and pro black or pro color people of color, then you must obviously be racist or sexist. Mm-hmm. And you know, then there's uh, the socialist groups that for the most part have actually been pretty you know polite. Um, and anarchist groups, it's kind of like back and forth, back and forth that. Uh, you never know what they're going to say, but some of them have some very unorthodox ideas that they're hoping that because the the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement do advocate a stateless society eventually, that we can just become a new, you know, avenue for the recruitment for the anarchist movement. And we are parts of all of those things and none of all of those things. And that would often lead to problems. You know, when I'm debating with uh, an anarchist who believes in a concept like spontaneous order, for example, that somehow if we just eliminate all authority figures, then everybody will just start getting along out of nowhere. Um, You know, that's not a compatible belief, you know, and it it doesn't mean that, uh, you know, we basically, you know, the difference being we believe that the environment creates behavior and that we've seen, in fact, that, you know, just turning off authority figures without any kind of uh, system in place for handling the, you know, the, the, the aberrant behavior that will be created can create problems unto itself. Actually, there was a documentary uh, that you know all watched over with the you know machines of loving grace that Adam yeah. Curtis put out recently, and he pointed out that within these uh, anarchist communes that were supposedly non-authoritarian, 
there are personalities that will step forward and try to take over, you know, and through social pressures and all of that, that will have a great deal of authority within a group, even if they have no official authority. Well, what you often find is that many of these anarchists who are pushing for no moderators, no rules, no laws, are also people who happen to know that they are those personalities. They know they will be in control if you get rid of those rules. And that's why they push for it. And I basically would say to them, you know, obviously we do want to get past the point when there are no moderators and no rules, but it doesn't happen by just handing the reins over to whoever is willing to be a bully, you know, and take over. Um, you know, that's been like uh, one of the biggest things I'd have to say, you know, was most polarizing about my experience is that um, activists have this problem in general. The libertarians are even worse, but, you know, uh, that they will fight each other. You know, because everybody who is an activist is angry about something for the most part. They've, they've got some grudge that they're they're taking out. Um, yeah, yeah, I'd say that's true. <laughs> right, and so then when the man, quote unquote, the man is not available to be smacked around, then they start look, they start turning on each other, and that's one of the major reasons why the one percent is in charge is because they're all on the same page. You know, they they all pretty much have the same plan the same world view and they all work together they do fight each other but at a very limited uh capacity and as a result despite the fact that you know the people who are not part of the one percent outnumber them by millions the one percent is still in charge because they're all on the same page because they all understand that you know it is to their you know their mutual better you know interests if all of them all kind of you know, follow that same, you know, formula. And in the meantime, we are endlessly, viciously fighting each other. Um, that's actually one of the points behind uh, Aaron Hawkins. Uh, some people know him as Storm Clouds Gathering and I's project in the Natural Rights Foundation. The Natural Rights Foundation is meant to be essentially a melding pot where different activists from different groups can come together and have constructive dialogues. Um, you know, and anybody who hasn't checked it out yet should check out uh, Aaron's blog talk show. Although he's probably going to be switching the format soon, uh, but it's called oh. Root Root of the Issue, and I've been on that show a few times already discussing a lot of these things. Oh, I'll have to uh, look into it because I've seen quite a few of his videos, um, but I didn't know he'd uh, created that. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Because. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, a lot of people know about the uh, discussion slash debate that uh, that you had with him primarily to sort of you know settle the the discrepancy about you know the videos that he was initially putting out that was being critical of the Zeitgeist movement. It it really showed that you know we that we do you know extend a lot of olive branches to people where we say well you know let's come and have a dialogue let's talk this through and. Yeah, and um, even though I would say that, you know, in that discussion, sometimes it did go around in circles, but it still sort of generally went in a in a positive direction. And and I think that's um, that is one thing that can that can sort of resolve the the differences that a lot of um, different activists have, because, you know, like you said, it, you know, there's a there's a wide spectrum of um of people, it's, it's kind of like when um, when I worked at uh, Kent and Sussex Hospital, um, I worked on the infection control ward, but there were every single kind of patient there. There were ba- there were bariatric patients, there were um, you know elderly patients, young patients. They all had that commonality, 
but they all came from different backgrounds and had different needs. It was the first time that I'd actually done that kind of job. And as a result, I found it very hard to uh, to sort of, you know, gauge it because it was a very steep learning curve. And I think that is very similar to the movement in the sense that, you know, we all have this commonality that we wish to bring about a sustainable world where we implement uh, technology and and the methods of science to help provide an access abundance for for life needs but we all come at it from to, um from even from completely different angles and it it's like we're all on the same page but we're all on separate pages at the very same time it's um and i think i think that's why a lot of um a lot of uh you know uh debates and uh, and discrepancies do come up between uh between zeitgeist movement activists because uh you know there's that there's that clash where we think to ourselves you know because i think one of the sticking points has been whether people think that politics can actually be a uh, a method through which social change can be achieved and especially yeah given given your background i mean what would you say would you say that politics can provide a route like if if uh, if somehow a um some political party affiliated with the movement do you think that would be successful what do you think um you know i've been the one known for uh still being willing to dip into the political world from time to time and i've taken a lot of flack for it but like as i pointed out in my very first article in the very first issue of the zeitgeist newsletter you can use the political system as a soapbox um, that term actually comes from like the period of, you know, basically the world where literally people would stand on soapboxes and give their, you know, their political views and ideologies on how the world should be and what could be done to fix it. And more or less, uh, what has to come out of that, uh, as far as the politics are concerned, is yeah, you can get some things changed, but you're best off trying to just get your message out there. Like for example, and I've told people this. When I was running as a libertarian, I was never going to win because I was a third-party candidate. It was extremely unlikely. Mm. You know, every now and then an independent can break through, but nobody who actively uh, says that they are part of one of these fringe ideologies will ever be elected. They will see to that. But, but because it is in their interest to at least pay lip service to the idea that everybody can run, you will be given airtime. You will be given opportunities that you would not get outside of being a candidate. Um, a lot of this actually goes back to what Socialist Party candidate Brian Moore told me back in 2008. He was the Socialist Party presidential candidate in the United States. And I had him on my show even back when I was a libertarian. And uh, he said, I said, so what do you as a third-party candidate feel you can accomplish? As you know, Because you know, it's not like the Socialist Party ever gets anybody elected and you know, I said it, you know, and to be fair, we libertarians don't generally either. And then he said, well, if you look at the history of the socialist movement, one of the reasons why a lot of Democrats are called socialists right now is because of the various concessions that the Democratic Party had to make in order to get socialist party votes. Like as in particularly from the working movement, like the workers' movements, the unions and such, the socialist parties and the communist parties had a much bigger presence uh, early on in American history and if the Democrats wanted the votes that were going to go to the Socialist Party, then they had to adopt those uh, principles to themselves or at least bring them into the dialogue. Mm. 
Mm. Even if they were lying, you know, they still had to at least pay lip service. You know, and that's essentially what these partisan politics can achieve. You know, the Republicans are essentially just refusing to take on any of Ron Paul's stuff as their own. And because of that, they're seeing a huge division in their party. The Republican Party is falling apart at the seams right now because there are some people that are refusing to do what the Democrats were willing to do, which is to absorb some of the ideas from their more extreme you know, cousins, so to speak, ideologically. And I anticipate that the Republican Party will continue to, to, de- to degrade in its effectiveness as long as it does that. But you have to recognize that it's going to take a lot of effort you're going to have to do you know, a lot of things to actually get some kind of pressure on these major parties to even get the dialogue to change. Um, mm-hmm. You see, for example, uh, in the Libertarian Party, there are a lot of anarcho-capitalists. And I remember talking to them. I'm like, so what are you even doing here? This is a political party if you're an anarchist. And they're like, well, we're hoping that through diligent efforts of spreading our ideas that we might eventually be able to convince people that there's no purpose for the state, you know, so in other words, they were part. They joined the system to remind everyone the system isn't working, and you know any success that they're having in that, you know, notwithstanding, it doesn't change the fact that they are getting a great deal more attention to anarcho-capitalist ideas than they would if they just said, "Well, screw the system; it doesn't work." When I was a libertarian candidate, I got invited onto mainstream radio. I got to debate the Democratic candidate, you know, one of the mainstream candidates. Um, I get to demonstrate the Green Party candidate. Uh, which got me on uh, small, like, you know, local television. But it's exposure that I would never have had if I was not a candidate. So even if the Zeitgeist Movement-oriented candidate ran for a position, got on television to talk about the resource-based economy and open the dialogue about those things, you know, they would achieve something. I guess the final example I will give you is the Federal Reserve. Ron Paul's candidacy for president in the 2008 is the reason anyone is talking about the Federal Reserve. And as a consequence, he will never get elected president. It does not change the fact that now people are talking about the Fed. Even mainstream news like Fox and CNN are talking about the Fed. And they're not talking about it in a positive light either. They're, you know, the, the spin is kind of impossible when you look at it and they realize that. <laughs> you know, so... That's what you can achieve. You have to look at it as essentially a tool for sociological change in that you're going to change the way people look at things, but you're probably not within that system going to fix it. But the more that system bucks against the will of the people, the more people will realize that system is not working. And we're already seeing that. Like I remember when I started back on the activist path, I used to have two Facebook groups. Um, because when I would try to use a lot of my activist stuff or share a lot of my activist information on my regular Facebook that was for non-activists and you know just anybody I knew, people would threaten to to remove me. They're like, I don't want to see that stuff. I'm not interested <laughs> in it, you know. And so that's why there's a VTVV radio account and a Neil Kiernan account. Yeah. And the funny thing is, I've noticed now that over time, through me slowly disseminating just a little bit of my ideas. Now all of the dialogue on my non-activist Facebook group has changed. I'm seeing links being posted by people who two years ago told me to cut that out um, that are things that I would post. You know, like, uh, in fact, that video that's making the rounds right now um, as you know, about wealth inequality, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, I have been circulating that, and I got it on my non-activist Facebook group from one of my friends who was one of the people who said they didn't want to see activist stuff on my Facebook wall. <laughs> so things are changing. 
so so you'd say that um that you have over over time positively affected the general mindset of the uh, of the people around you even even in regular uh regular parlance as it were mhm and that's fantastic you have to get people to slowly accept these things but it takes diligence you can't give up the first time somebody doesn't want to hear it um mm. and then but then there are also, as Jacques pointed out when I was becoming a spokesman, there are going to be some people that you just shouldn't waste your time with. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I myself, I've, you know, I've always, uh, you know, tried my best to communicate well to people. And uh, even though I've never, all, I've, I've never been the perfect communicator for anything, as, you know, as we're all imperfect human beings, um but i've but i've always strived to um to to make that good uh, communicative effort because the thing is when when i when i first encountered the uh the uh, the uh, the train of thought um my my initial sort of like knee jerk reaction against it well, it wasn't a, a a reaction against it it was a sort of uh transformative uh, view uh, with my own life and the world that I've been brought into that you know I felt angry that I'd been brought into a world that had been allowed to get as bad as it was and but not only that uh, on on the flip side it was also mixed with a feeling of um, elation that uh, that there is a potential solution to to make things better and as uh, I think that was probably how I felt for the first, well, probably the first nine months to a year of be of being an activist, that uh, that I you know that I was fueled by this anger, but uh, but that that you know that slowly dissipated and and I actually grew to grew to actually be appreciative that I've that I've been born into this period of history right now. I mean there was a uh, I mean I was listening to a um to a Joe Rogan experience podcast, uh, one of the uh, one of the recent ones where they're talking to Duncan Trussell. And um and Duncan uh he he states a um I, I mean I don't know whether this is an actual theory that uh, that people have now but he 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 made the claim that uh, there are there's a theory going around with new age people that uh, that there are that there are souls that have chosen to be born now just so they can uh, they can be able to to have been witness to this very interesting point in history and you know it, even though you know <clears throat> when you think about it, it you know it's quite ridiculous but it is an interesting thing that you know that the period of history that we're living in right now is so so interesting and so different to any other point in history. So why should we feel angry about being brought into this? Because you know it, it's it's a bit like what George Carlin says is that uh, when you're born into uh, when he's, especially when he's because he's talking about the United States, he said when you're born into this country, you're given a front row ticket. Uh, Front row ticket to the freak show. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, I mean, would uh, would would you say you uh, you'd agree with uh, with that summation? That because because obviously you know I um, I can't speak from experience like living in uh, living in the United Kingdom, 
but would you say that living in the United States, it's uh, that's an, an accurate summation? I think that the United States is essentially the the point of the spear, so to speak, when it comes to the direction that the world is moving. Um, I do think that the United States is definitely an excellent example of what not to do, but um, <laughs> I actually spent some time in Ireland, and uh, oh. one of the one of the bed and breakfasts that I stayed at was run by a teacher, a history teacher more specifically, and we had a long conversation about um, what she saw going on in Ireland. And one of the things was is that, well, it seems that uh, Ireland is not content to simply allow the United States to make mistakes, that we insist on making every single one of those mistakes <laughs> ourselves <laughs> You know, before we're willing to acknowledge that they're mistakes. Um, she talked about the, the fact that all of her students are just saturated with media. You know, the they're endlessly playing handheld video games, you know, the iPods, the, the cell phones. And, you know, they're, they're so tuned into that and they're not tuned into the world. You have to remember that, you know, people like you and me use the Internet as a tool of enlightenment. Most hmm. people use it as a tool to numb themselves to the things that are actually bothering them. You know, that's that's when these things can become destructive. And I think she was absolutely right. There's kind of a feeling also that it reminds me of like uh like when you're raising teenagers that they insist on making all those same mistakes that you made, you know, and they're not willing to listen to you because you did have some fun along the way, and that's what they're hoping to get. They don't realize the long-term consequences. And I think that uh, overall, like, for example, um, I had a friend who lives in China, and I asked him, you know, what does he think as far as, like, the, you know, is there any kind of communistic ideology in China, like, for the country that claims to be a communist country? And he's like, no, actually, the exact opposite is true. I'm watching as people in China are becoming incredibly materialistic, that they're becoming incredibly consumeristic because they're following in the footsteps of the other country that was the huge manufacturing giant that made a bunch of money making all the stuff, which is what China is doing now. And mm -hmm. so they're passing into their renaissance of you know what comes from that in the positive and then eventually they will in turn deal with all of the negatives that go along with it. You know, he said that you know, Chinese women are becoming more uh, materialistic about who they choose to marry. Um, you know, that the they're they, that overall the the culture in general is seeking. You know, they've all got to own cars, even though there's no practical, you know, application for owning motor vehicles in most of China. Um, you know, they've all got to you know have like super nice stuff because they have been caught up in the social stratification system. And I say, yeah, America is certainly part of the problem. But, you know, from what I gathered from this conversation with this lady from Ireland, that the United Kingdom is not really that far away from that. Um, yeah, not far you know, away at all. <laughs> that um, other countries, that the more modern they become, the more, you know, the more, you know, benefits that come, but also the same kind of decadence. Essentially, Rome, rather than crashing at this point, is spreading like a disease. And it's the kind of disease that, you know, I mean, think about it. Okay, we've already seen that statistically the the planet cannot handle everybody here living the way the United States does. It can't. Definitely not. But do you think that the other countries that are coming into the, to their wealth 
are going to go, oh, well, we're not going to try to live like you. You know, they're not going to say that. They're going to be like, no, it's our turn. We want to do this, too. You guys did it for the last 200 years. We mm-hmm. want to do it, too. You know, and then the planet dies at that point. That's why when people discuss, you know, like capitalism systems versus uh, resource-based economies or versus centrally planned systems like, you know, communism, they they always want to ask you, what are you going to do? Are you going to force us to be part of your, you know, intelligently managed system? I'm like, no, we don't have to do that. Well, what do you mean? I'm like, you know, because you would have to force me. I'm like, no, you don't get it. Yeah. End game here is an uninhabitable planet that kills all of us. We're not going to show up at your door and force you to do anything. We don't advocate violence. We also don't think it's effective. But when the planet is uninhabitable, we all die. The situation, the circumstances, will force people to change. Yeah, it, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've, there's, yeah, there's, there's that sort of mind lock um, in so many different facets of our, you know, of our uh, cultural nuances and. And our, um, you know, the our methods and, and our values. I mean, I mean, one 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 of them in particular. One, you know, one that it's probably the one of the most emotionally charged issues. And I relish the uh, the thought of diving headlong into it. And that is the uh, the issue of um, of people who molest children. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, and one of the one of the things that that I I you know that I like to interact with people about is that what method of behavior modification is effective? You know, um, what what is the best way to go about truly solving this problem? And because it's such a such an emotionally charged issue, a lot of people say, oh well, you know. Bring back hanging, bring back the guillotine, or throw, um, lock them up, throw away the key, sort of thing. And, and they're so emotionally charged. And I try, I try and engage them on a level, and I say that that kind, that kind of, that kind of, you know, method uh, we've been using for thousands upon thousands of years. Um, it clearly hasn't worked. Um, so what we need to do is we need to figure out what can actually stop this once and for all and if you think about it if you're if you're diagnosed with a brain tumor uh but your main symptom is uh the headaches are you going to are you going to cure yourself of a brain tumor by prescribing paracetamol no you're not you need to actually you know find out uh you know you need to get a biopsy you need to find out whether the uh, whether the tumor is benign or malignant. You have to find out whether it can be operated on. If it can, then you need that tumor removed. So therefore, in order to get down to the very bottom of, well, in order to truly solve such an emotionally charged issue, such as pedophilia, we need to get down to the brass tacks there. We need to find out what causes that behavior and thus be able to truly you know, eradicate the the instances of that happening. But the thing is that that advocation of total so- solution to it that gets lost because so many people are so emotionally charged because 
you know, because it's, you know, it is one of those really visceral issues. I mean, surely yourself being a father, you you can understand how, you know, because I mean, myself, I'm I'm not a father, so I can't really, you know, uh, speak with complete um, with complete empathy about this. But obviously, you 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 know, you're um, you're in that position where you where you can completely understand that well, you know. Yeah, situation. I mean, let me. Not only am I a father, but uh, that's happened to my daughter before um, oh, really? at the hand yes, at the hands of uh, the man that my ex-wife was with. And so, yeah, I do understand. But at the same token, you know, <laughs> the funny thing is, is that although, you know, I never encountered the individual after it happened, which is probably better for me. Um, <laughs> it doesn't change the fact that it, I still recognize through the entire thing that the individual was someone who probably should not have been around children in the first place. And I shared that same uh, feeling with my ex-wife, who, of course, didn't listen. But, you know, when I met the guy, he looked like the main character of American History X. He had, like, hate tattoos on him. <laughs> he, you know, he had a, a long criminal record of, of things like... Uh, cocaine possession, heroin possession, larceny, uh, robbery. I mean, he was not a good person, you know. Um, so, well, right. And so, and it's not this, and once again, product of his environment. But, there, you know, when you look at the issue of child molestation, you also have to look at the cultural points behind it. Because when you consider this, um, for example, 13-year-old girls used to be considered of sexual, you know, maturity. And they would get married. And I'm not advocating that that's what should happen, but I'm pointing out that our perception of this issue has changed. Absolutely. Um, I'm pointing out that it's important to understand, you know, the the various issues that go along with this, and consider for a moment that culturally we are now in a world where what was once considered to be a viable sexual age is not anymore. Most of that is also, mind you, due to necessity, because in the earlier ages, people lived less time. So as a result, you know, there was less time after a woman, you know, had her first period um, to start having children, you know, and many children that you had were going to die. So culturally, that's what evolved out of that. Um, the most, almost all of the indications say that sexual molestation uh, is like a plague essentially that reproduces itself, as in you get it because someone else gave it to you. You know, somebody did it to you. Um, it doesn't happen spontaneously. That's another thing that I think people need to understand because, you know, that's why like, people are like, oh, well, well, human nature says that there are just bad people. You know, that there are child molesters and, and, and murderers and all of that. And I'm like, okay, so what you're telling me is, is that child molestation and murder is part of human nature? If that's the case, then why are we not all out there molesting children and murdering people? Exactly. exactly. You know, um, and that's a really irresponsible way to look at it. It essentially allows us to go, oh, well, that's human nature. Allows us to not really take responsibility. You know, just like Gabor Mate said in Zeitgeist Moving Forward, you know, the genetic argument essentially allows us to uh, you know, it's a cop-out. It allows us to yeah. you know, refer to the state of things without actually taking responsibility for our part in those state of, in the state of things. You know, that's a paraphrase, but you get the point. It's essentially, um, you know, uh, just like anything else. Is it an emotionally charged issue? Absolutely it's an emotionally charged issue because 
people shouldn't rape kids. But our system that we have right now for, for dealing with the problem isn't working. You know, and that's it's interesting actually, you know, how all of those things go down. I mean, um the state was not in any way willing to act on the total negligence on the part of my ex wife to do anything about what happened to our daughter. Um she had the guy in the house for twenty four hours after she found out what he had done, you know, while my daughter was there, let him stay overnight, all kinds of stuff. The state did nothing. But I've also seen the state intervene um, in situations where nobody was hurt and, you know, they just they overcompensated, they, you know, and did too much and then ended up causing all kinds of problems for a family, you know, mm-hmm. and that's generally because people who are involved in these social work positions are not raised to consider, you know, raised, not trained to consider the root causes of these problems and to really psychologically or, you know, scientifically evaluate you know, who it is that they're dealing with. You know, they, they're given a set of symptoms to look for. They're not given a set of causes to look for. And so essentially they're just kind of doing patchwork and it becomes an ineffective system for protecting anybody. And then you yeah. throw the guy in prison where he's, you know, like you ever listen to what people say about what happens to a man who's been thrown in prison? You know, like, oh, well, he's going to get raped in prison. I'm like, oh, okay, well, so now basically what you're saying is is that you advocate rape <laughs> You know, of people who've raped, and you know, it, you know, in so doing, you're essentially kind of, right. You know, so now you're uh, culturally you're accepting it under certain circumstances when it should just shouldn't be accepted at all. Yeah. You know, there. I mean, we have a lot of growing to do as a species in these areas, and I think you're right about the the emotional attachment. Um, I think that emotional attachment to many issues is a serious problem. That's why kind of the core of my work right now. Um, is that I've been trying to work, you know, like people tend to think that it's just about identifying and, and confronting trolls, but that's like a, a small part of it. I tend to work on the issue of the problems we have with communication, um, even among friends, you know, not people who are your enemies, people who, you know, among friends, people that you consider friends. You can't have debates with them because we are raised in a culture where losing a debate, you know, affects your social standing within a group of people. So people, diligently defend themselves, you know, in these situations, and even if it's not logical, you know. Mm. So, you know, something to consider is that we have a tendency to employ logical fallacy uh, on a scale that uh, nobody else would, you know, um, that in a way that makes our collective consciousness and ability to communicate polluted it's pollution when you engage in logical fallacy whether let's say you and i are debating you know the most obvious one is i start insulting you so that sends a message to the audience oh okay well hey he that guy's getting insulted i don't know if i want to be associated with that i don't want to get insulted next you know yeah, maybe i shouldn't therefore going. right then therefore i should not associate with anything that this guy who's getting insulted is saying because I, mean, I might get insulted just for for talking about the things that he's talking about, you know that whole social wiring of the system. Okay, uh, people are not conscious of it immediately, and they don't understand that the issue of allowing people to actively engage in aggressive, insulting behavior is more dangerous than just hurting someone's feelings. It's that now I am altering the dialogue to be inefficient. Because now we're going to discuss which one of us is higher in the social standing, and then we're going to let that determine who, quote-unquote, won the debate. 
you know, then you get into straw man fallacies and appeal to fear fallacies and appeal to mockery fallacies. I mean, I honestly feel that in as part of English class and as part of the various communications classes that we take when we're growing up, that the logical fallacies need to be taught as an inherent portion of understanding what is effective communication and what is not. There are people who are total experts on grammar and spelling who don't understand that if they construct a sentence that contains a logical fallacy, then they are, in effect, therefore, destroying the meaning of their sentence or the value of their sentence. Mm. You know, just something to consider. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, found, I've found that as well because, I mean, because uh, I know the, the show that you did about uh, ad hominem was uh, was very um, very enlightening to me because you know before then I'd, I'd I'd heard the phrase logical fallacies but I'd never sort of you know what is a logical fallacy is it is it just you know saying something that's inaccurate you know, you know I didn't um, <clears throat> I didn't completely uh, appreciate what um, what it was and and uh, and after after I listened to it and started looking into logical fallacies themselves. I started recognizing how abundant they were in a lot, um, an alarming amount of my communications. And I'm like, crikey, I really, I really do need to work on this. You know, cause there's, you know, cause we're, you know, as, as a child, I, you know, you know, throughout school, I wasn't taught critical thinking. You know, uh, I, I dare say not, not many, uh, not many children are. It's, it, I wouldn't say it's, even now, I wouldn't even say it's part of the, uh, Part of the national curriculum in in the United United Kingdom. I don't I, I don't know uh, whether it's part of the curriculum in the United States, but um, but it's the you know it's kind of like what George Collins said. You know, um, it, you know the the owners of this country don't want people to you know capable of critical thinking. You know, because it because that lack of critical thinking it enables the establishment to do whatever whatever they want to do but you know when we when we experience that shift in our in our va- in in our um in our knowledge and uh, and also in in our values as well it shows that you know it shows that potential for both uh psychological and emotional growth so so i guess with that in mind and uh, one of the uh, one of the last things we'll uh, we'll talk about for this particular segment um is what would you say are the if you could um list a small group of the the largest changes in uh, in your in your thinking your and your values that you've that you've experienced since becoming um an you know an advocate of this train of thought i mean i know for you the you know the the changes wouldn't wouldn't be drastic because you were on um as i said you you'd hit the ground running in that sense, but what would you say are the 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 most profound uh, changes that have occurred in your in your value set and mindset? Um, honestly, I mean, uh, like you said, it, it's not drastic, but I had different reasons initially. For example, I valued my free time a lot, which is why I was not very much into um, uh, um, it was not very much into you know making a lot of money. But one of the more profound things I'd have to say was um, the values that changed. Like there was a time when I had a thing for leather jackets. 
and I still do to some extent, but uh, I would spend lots of money on leather jackets, and nowadays I would not ever do that. You know, it wouldn't even occur to me to do that. Um, I cared about lots of, you know, like for example, video games used to be a much larger part of my life. Um, and now they're just not. Um, I still play some, but, you know, because it's better, you know, every now and then I found, because the other thing I discovered when I just decided to cut them out of my life entirely, um, I don't know if you've ever played the game The Sins. Can't say I have, no. The Sims is about... Uh, oh, like The Sims. Oh, yeah, yeah. sorry, I thought you said... Yeah, yeah, The I'll Sims. Play, play those, yeah. um, well, your Sim has a lot of needs, and one of those needs is fun. And if you don't, you know, if you don't allow your Sim to have fun, your Sim starts to become less and less capable of doing everything else that it needs to survive. Um, and I realized that, you know, I needed to have a little bit of fun. You know, that that was just, in fact, sometimes I needed to have a lot, particularly if I've been doing a lot of very unfun things for a long period of time. Um, you know, but uh, basically, um, that was like one of the more profound things that happened to me is that now, for example, like online video games in particular, I used to play a lot of them for very long periods of time. And I reevaluated a lot about what was important to me and more specifically the fact that I, I recognized that online video games were being designed in such a way so as to be a perpetual carrot on the stick. You were never finished getting your gear, you know, getting your stuff. You're, you're never finished with that. You never actually get to play because you're always preparing to play. <laughs> you know, you never get to have fun because they've convinced you that you should pay them $15, you know, a month to go do repetitive, boring tasks over and over again that will in turn earn you the right to enjoy yourself while playing the game. <laughs> and then as soon as you're done with that, you're now going to find that they are releasing even more powerful gear than the last gear you had. So you're oh, going to have yeah. to go do repetitive things again and again and again. And they were responding to a certain point in the market that I actually feel um, was them responding to the fact that we as a society have been conditioned to believe that work is part of our natural state. So people are literally coming home from their jobs to then log on to World of Warcraft to then work, you know, for stuff that they earn to, that allows them to have a certain social status within their online environment, meaning that even in our leisure, we are working for some sort of social stratification and materialistic system. Hmm. Yeah, that's um, that's one thing that I've found is is very interesting. How that kind of thing that is meant for leisure and for relaxation and enjoyment has just been hijacked. It really has been hijacked. And um, uh, I'll tell you what, I I um, I think we've uh, I think we've actually run out of out of time for this particular show. So. Um, so I mean, I'd love to uh, love to have you on uh, again for um, for another segment to uh, to continue this. But uh, but just before uh, just before we sign off here, uh, do you want to give any shout outs to any um, give any links or any other information to the audience? Uh, yeah. Um, 
My website, as you pointed out so well, uh, is v hyphen or v minus, meaning you know v dash, meaning the basically the minus symbol or the minus sign. Yeah. Uh, radio dot org. So, um, and there they can go to my archives and listen to literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of programming, of other good constructive conversations like this one, interviews with uh, activists, scientists, documentary filmmakers, politicians, the few good ones. Mm. Um, and uh, my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries on the Internet that you can watch with links that allow you to, to get a lot of critical understandings uh, of the world around you. Um, I would also check out um, The Root of the Issue. I'm not sure like uh, the best way to find it. I know that uh, my name is attached to it in several places on Facebook. Oh, um, okay. Cool. And uh, fans of V Radio is my Facebook group, which you can find in the um, the links section on my website. Yeah. Um, and I'm very active on there. And my personal information, as far as like how to contact me via email and Skype and all that, is all available there. So if you ever have any questions or just want to chat about something, I make myself available. So. Cool. Well, it was uh, it was great to have you on, Neil. Thank you so much for. For giving us your time, and um, and we'll uh, we'll look forward to speaking to you again. Thanks again. Oh, and you know what? I've completely forgotten to mention what the next show is going to entail. Well, I'm very pleased to announce that next time on AAU TZM podcast, for the first time, we're going to actually have a female voice represented on the show in the form of the very brilliant and useful Brandy Hume of uh, the TVP Challenge YouTube channel. So I'm very, uh, very eagerly looking forward to speaking with Brandy there because I've, I've been meaning to get her on the show for quite a while. It's just she's very busy and, uh, you know, it's been, you know, difficult to get hold of her in that regard. So uh, thanks very much for listening, everyone. Uh, so it's a goodbye from me and say goodbye, Neil. Take care. <laughs>